Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's so great to be with all you guys here at Mission. I got to say hey to my Reardon campus, which is where I normally worship on the weekend. I can't hear you, Reardon. <laughs> I still can't hear you, but hopefully you guys are screaming over there. Um, a shout out to Pastor Sam and Ike Kwan, the campus host. And I want to give you a quick fun fact about Ike. I went to college with that guy. And um, did you know that he is the master of the fried turkey? And he told me the other day that he's going to give away 100 free turkeys for Christmas. So make sure you get in your order with him today, OK? He's such a generous guy, isn't he? <laughs> so this is actually my first time uh, sharing during the Christmas season at Cornerstone. It's been a while since I've um, been here. It's, I think maybe I, came, I was back here in last February or so. Um, so I'm super excited to share. But I think I need to start off with a little confession. I don't really like Christmas. <laughs> and I don't know if any of you feel the same way. Um, but don't get me wrong. I, of course, I love celebrating the birth of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But I just don't care for all that crazy busyness that comes along with it. You know, there's so much we got to squeeze in, all the extra events and the rushing around. And sometimes it just feels like a big blur with not enough downtime. And it probably doesn't help that I was pregnant many times during Christmas with really bad morning sickness. So when you guys hear a Christmas song, you might feel happy. I just feel nauseous. Okay? <laughs> it's very unfortunate. <laughs> but honestly, I, I don't care for the consumerism that the holiday gift giving can promote. And I know that gift giving is a very nice tradition. I, I love gifts myself. But sometimes I do think it can take the focus off the true meaning of Christmas. I remember when our oldest was just a toddler, all he wanted for Christmas was cheese balls. Okay, you know how with your first you're really strict about junk food? So cheese balls were a big deal. Okay. And when he unwrapped those cheese balls on Christmas morning, he was ecstatic and he immediately wanted to open them and eat them. And here's the thing if we had let him open those cheese balls and not given him anything else, he would have been perfectly content. Perfectly content. But there are more gifts for him to open, of course, from grandparents and aunts and uncles. And, but he was so fixated on those cheese balls that we had to take them away and hide them, you know, do the whole distraction thing, and then quick, put them in the other room. And um, finally, he gave his attention to the next gift. And he, of course, he opens it. And I think it was like a puzzle or something. And again, he wants to start playing with it right away, right? But we're like, no, 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 there's more. And this time, it was a little easier to get him to turn his attention to the next gift. And by the fourth or fifth gift, he was getting the hang of it. He was ripping off the paper, tossing the gift aside, and then looking for the next one. And then when there were no more gifts to open, he cried. <laughs> we should have just stopped with those cheese balls. What is, about, is it about human nature that makes us so susceptible to taking things for granted? It turns out that scientists have a name for it. It's called hedonic adaptation. We tend to focus on relative comparisons rather than absolutes. A study of Olympic medalists found that bronze medalists were happier about their medals than the silver medalists. Because silver medalists had their eye on gold, so they were disappointed with silver, where the bronze medalists were grateful that they just made it on the podium and didn't end up in fourth place. If I could put it another way, gratitude is a function of your reference point and your perspective. And it takes a little effort to maintain a healthy perspective, doesn't it? Earlier this year, I had an opportunity to adjust my perspective about my health. Many of you are familiar with my cancer story. Some of you might not be. 
But in 2015, I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and I'm on this innovative new medication. It's something that gives me more midichlorians or mandalorians or something like that. <laughs> That's for you Star Wars people out there. I know the movie is coming out this weekend. My kids are super excited. But my treatment is working so well that my doctors actually call me a miracle. Who knew that was a medical term? Because for the average patient, my drug suppresses tumor growth for only three months, while I'm going on four and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Praise God. You guys are still stuck with me. <laughs> but earlier this year, um, I had a little scare. I had gotten some routine CT scans and went to my oncologist's office to review the results. And I was feeling really good. There was no reason for me to be concerned. But when I checked in, they told me that I was going to have a chemo infusion later that afternoon. But I, haven't, I hadn't had a chemo infusion in over two years. So um, my heart began to sink, sink. And I came to my own terrifying conclusion that the cancer was back. It was back. And as I waited for my doctor to see me, my mind was racing with all these crazy thoughts. And I remember praying, OK, Lord, I trust you. I know I can do this. I've had a good run. Uh, at one point, a nurse came in to take my vitals, and she updated my charts. And your blood pressure is really high, she says to me. And I'm thinking, that's because I just found out that my cancer is back. And as my doctor walked into that examination room, I braced myself for the worst. And she said to me, hey, Alex, your scans look great, but we really need to talk about your blood pressure. <laughs> I was fine. Thank you, Lord, I was fine. The chemo appointment was just a mistake. And I wasn't even upset about it because I was so relieved, so overjoyed that I was okay. And that night, I celebrated like never before. I was dancing around the house. I was hugging my kids really tight. Again, gratitude is a function of your reference point. If I hadn't been wrongfully scheduled for chemo that day, I would have received the news of my scan, not ungratefully, but maybe with a sense of routine. But the moment I thought that the cancer was back, my reference point shifted. A great chasm of fear opened up between me and those scan results. And when I got the good news, my gratitude was, can I say, reharvested for the miracle of my good health. I actually have a scan this coming Tuesday, so uh, the champagne is chilled and ready to go, God willing. I'll let you know how it goes. But I tell you this story because I wonder if we ever take the miracle of Jesus for granted. Here we are at Christmas time. We're celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior. May Christmas never feel routine to us. Amen? We've been in this great series about gratitude, so I think it's appropriate to slow it down a little and really reflect on the significance of Christmas. Yes, we give gifts to each other at Christmas, but God gave us Jesus at Christmas, and he's the greatest gift the world has ever known. And in the time I have left, I want to unwrap the gift of Jesus together. And for some of us, maybe we'll learn something new. And for others, it might be a good opportunity to adjust our perspectives and our reference points and to reharvest our gratitude for the Lord. Now, have you ever received a gift that after you unwrapped it, there was another one inside that, and after you unwrapped that, there's another one inside that, so on and so forth, kind of like those nested Russian dolls? Well, I think that the gift of Jesus is like that. He's like a bunch of awesome, amazing gifts all wrapped up in the form of a tiny baby in a manger. And that baby had a very special mission. 
And to better understand that mission, we're going to fast forward from that manger scene about 30 years and take a look at a passage in Luke chapter 4. It's in your handout if you'd like to follow along with me. Now, Jesus has officially started his ministry. He's teaching in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And it was customary for the speaker to first read a passage from the prophets, which were on big scrolls. They weren't in, on, in books like we have today. And then to teach on that passage. OK, so verse 17 says, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. OK, so I just want to point out that Jesus seems to choose which passage he wants to read, which is from Isaiah 61. And it's a prophetic passage about the promised Messiah. Of course, Jesus is reading about himself. And the next few verses, I think, are like his mission statement, his manifesto for his ministry, and how fitting, given that this is the first detailed account of Jesus' teaching in public that we find in the Gospels. OK, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Bam! Right out of the gate. Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah. See, the Jews have been promised a Messiah, and they would have understood that this scripture was a prophecy about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, it's fulfilled today. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who's going to save you. And we know how the story unfolds. The Jews eventually reject him, and he's crucified like a criminal on the cross. And it was on that cross that Jesus did his work as our savior. Romans 6.23 puts it concisely for us. We'll put this up. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the Jews wanted a political revolutionary to free them from Roman rule, but Christ's mission was to free us from the power of sin. And, it, and this was a mission that would have an eternal impact, not merely an earthly one. He paid for our sins on the cross, making a way for us to be reunited with a holy, perfect God. How amazing is that? Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be eternally separated from God? Just think about that for a moment. The Bible tells us that everything good comes from God. So imagine a place where there is nothing good. Christ's sacrifice saves us, and we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet he gives it to us freely because of his great love for us. So first and foremost, Jesus gives us the gift of salvation, eternal life in heaven. And that's just mind-boggling. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you. My father-in-law, Vince, has this little way of keeping perspective. Whenever you ask him, how are you? He doesn't say things like fine or OK or great. He always says, better than I deserve. Isn't that great? And I love his reference point of humility. It anchors us in gratitude for the eternal life that awaits us. But sometimes, I think we can move a little too quickly from the manger to the cross. If we simplify the Christian faith down to just Christmas and Easter, we're going to miss out on a big part of what Jesus wants for us. Because so much happened between his birth 
and his death. Let's go back to his mission statement from our passage. He said, he will release captives, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. Now, the book of Isaiah has hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, and yet he chose this particular one that day. And I think it's because it communicates so beautifully exactly what he was going to do on his path to the cross. He was going to radically change the lives of the people he would meet. The Jews wanted political freedom, but Jesus was going to free them from the power of sin in their hearts. And this is exactly what he does with everyone he encounters. For example, the Samaritan woman at the well was imprisoned by her immoral lifestyle. Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector, was oppressed by his greed. The Pharisee Nicodemus was blinded by his religiosity. Jesus would interact with each of them in such personal, tender ways and set them all free. And yes, he did physically heal the lame and the sick and the blind, but spiritual healing was always his biggest concern. And after an encounter with him, no one would be the same. Their faith was set in motion toward repentance, gratitude, and change. And the same goes for us today. When we decide to follow Jesus, he wants to radically change our lives. Maybe we can remember the moment where we let him into our hearts. And he wants to change us on this side of heaven. He puts us on a path not just toward eternal life, but on a path of growth and transformation. I read this really depressing article a few weeks ago about a recent study uh, that showed that American life expectancy is falling at an alarming rate. And it's being caused by things like obesity and drug addiction and suicide. And uh, it's a little baffling to the, um, to the academics uh, because a lot of the other countries that are in our, that have our kind of economy are, are, are thriving and their expect life expectancies are, are rising and ours is not, it's falling. But what really struck me was one of the researchers' comments, um, and I'm just gonna read this. I thought this was really uh, kind of um, very interesting. Okay, here we go. The report reveals a broad erosion in health with no single smoking gun. Something more fundamental about how people are feeling is going on. Whether it's economic, whether it's stress, whether it's the deterioration of family, people are feeling worse about themselves and their futures, and that's leading them to do things that are self-destructive. I marvel at how Isaiah 61 is still relevant today. It describes the brokenness of humanity, and despite all of our technological and social advances here in America, the imprisoned, the blind, and the uh, oppressed are still, they're still with us, along with loneliness and despair, anger, and addiction. But here's the thing, Jesus isn't saying, just, just hang on until you die and go to heaven. That is not his message. Our faith is not an insurance policy to be exercised at death. It was meant to make a difference in our everyday lives. Francis Chan is a dynamic speaker and author he speaks here at Cornerstone from time to time. Some of you might have heard him. And honestly, I'm a little scared of that guy <laughs> because he's got this way of saying things that really challenged my faith. If you've heard him, you know what I mean. But in his book, Forgotten God, he writes, and, and I quote, when people give their lives to God in exchange for a ticket out of hell, there is often no change or turning of direction, which is the definition of repentance. If all you want is a little Jesus to spiritualize your life, you are missing out on the fullness of life you were created for, end quote. Francis is right. 
Jesus absolutely wants us to have a full life here on earth. In fact, he calls it the abundant life. In John 10.10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Other translations say a life in all its fullness and a rich and satisfying life. And he's not talking about material wealth. He's talking about a peace that surpasses all understanding that only he can give. Jesus says, I've redeemed you, but now I want to restore you. I want to heal your broken heart. I want to free you from your past. And I want you to experience a rich and satisfying life filled with hope here on earth. Will our problems go away? Probably not. In fact, he tells us that we will have troubles in this world. He doesn't promise better circumstances, but he does promise a better perspective. And by the way, did you know that circumstances, like our finances or our health, do not have a big impact on our happiness? It's true. There's been a lot of research on the science of happiness the last few years. The most popular class at Yale University is a class that teaches students how to be happy. Isn't that interesting? And the first lecture in the curriculum covers the drivers of happiness. Scientists found that your level of happiness is determined 50% by your genetics, which makes sense, right? Some of us are just a little more naturally positive than others. 40% by your thoughts, attitudes, and actions. And this includes things like exercise and practicing gratitude. But only 10% by our circumstances. Evidently, more money, a better job, better health, better kids don't make us that much happier. In other words, it's not what we have that makes us happy. It's what we do and how we think. And isn't it interesting that our culture puts a lot of effort into changing our circumstances, which at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of control over, rather than focusing on our attitudes and actions, which we actually have a lot of control over. I can't change the fact that I'm blind, but I can choose to see my disability as an adventure. And let me tell you, it's definitely an adventure when you're raising three crazy boys. (laughs) But don't you love how science is just figuring out what God already knows? When we follow Jesus, he gives us a new mindset, turning from our selfish desires and focusing on the thoughts, attitudes, and actions of Christ. Check out this verse in Romans. We'll put it up. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jesus says, don't follow the norms of the culture. Focus on me. I want to show you a different way of thinking, one that takes an eternal perspective. I want to give you a different identity. As my son and as my daughter, I'm going to give you a different value system of love and humility. And little by little, we are transformed into his character. And our lives begin to change. We're a little more patient, a little more loving. We don't always have to have our way. And we can forgive. A friend of mine recently told me that she knew Jesus had changed her when she was able to forgive someone she couldn't forgive for many, many years. And maybe Jesus has changed you in a similar way also. And slowly but surely, our joy doesn't come from our circumstances, from how much money we make or how we look or if our kid got into Yale or not. In fact, we find that even in difficult, painful seasons, we can still be joyful. And that's the abundant life that Jesus wants for us. That's the abundant life. Okay, I think we just unwrapped another gift. Jesus gives us the gift of transformation, an abundant life on earth. 
Thank you, Lord, for changing us. Thank you for not leaving us where you find us. But some of us might be asking, uh, the abundant life sounds great, sounds great, but how do we get there? How do we get from blind and oppressed to rich and satisfying when life is hard and full of many, many challenges? And I've got two answers for you. The first is one day at a time. One day at a time. A personal relationship with the Lord means that we get to know him, we spend time with him, we read his word, we talk to him, we pray, we follow his commandments, and we surround ourselves with other believers, like everyone else here. But the second answer is that Jesus gives us yet another gift. He gives us another gift, and it is called the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, our helper. Let's go back to verse 18 in our passage. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He was filled with the Holy Spirit throughout his entire ministry on earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is what enabled his miracles and resurrected him from the grave. And that same power is given to us when we accept Jesus. To us. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples that it's better for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come to them now think about that for a minute. If disciples had Jesus in the flesh with them, what could be better than that? But Jesus says in John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And the word another in the original text here means exactly like. So Jesus is saying that he's gonna give us someone who is exactly like him. The Holy Spirit is fully God. He's a member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And how amazing is it that he lives inside of us? This is a total game changer and why Jesus said it's better for him to go. Now, I only have time to give you a quick overview of how the Holy Spirit helps us, but I hope that this gives us confidence that we can grow in the Lord and, not, and that we don't have to do it on our own strength. We don't have to do it alone. Here are some of the names and roles of the Holy Spirit, and this is not a comprehensive list. He is our helper reminding us of Christ's teachings and giving us the power to overcome temptation. He is our counselor, giving us wisdom and revelation to understand God's word. He is our intercessor, praying for us when we don't know how to pray. He is the spirit of truth, leading us to repentance. He is our encourager, filling us with hope and love and peace. And he even gives us more gifts. He is the giver of spiritual gifts. And these are special capabilities, manifestations of the Spirit that are meant to strengthen a body of believers as a whole, like teaching, prophecy, and hospitality, to name just a few. If I could put it this way, if I could summarize, the Holy Spirit leads us into God's will and helps us accomplish it. He's like a guide on a trek who will carry your pack for you when you get really tired, but we still have to do the work of hiking up that mountain. The Holy Spirit's job is to lead, our job is to follow, and he will help us when we're tired or hungry or cranky, and sometimes we're not going to want to follow him up certain trails, like when he wants us to help someone when we have a million things to do, or maybe if he wants us to deal something painful from our past, but that's when we grow. That's when we grow, when we put our will aside and we follow his. The Bible calls us living in the Spirit. And as we become more in tune with him, we will experience him in more powerful ways. We'll see evidence of him in our lives, like love, joy, peace, and patience, as he makes us more like Jesus. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians about how the Spirit grows us. We'll put it up. So all of us who have had that veil removed 
can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we don't have to do this alone. But maybe some of us don't feel close to the Lord right now. Maybe we feel stuck. Sometimes we don't even realize that we've stopped growing. I know that for me, there were long, stagnant stretches in my life. We all grow at different rates and at different seasons, and that's okay. That's okay. We're all work in process. But let's keep growing. Jesus wants us to keep growing. I have a friend in her 80s, and she always says, if I'm not dead, I'm not done. Isn't that great? Okay, let's say that together. Ready? If I'm not dead, I'm not done. It's great. And Jesus gives us yet another gift to help us grow. He gives us the gift of community, the church, all of us, everyone here. I'm not going to say too much here, but um, I just want to say we really, really need each other. We need to encourage one another, pray for one another, serve one another. This is a safe and loving place to grow in the Lord. I urge you to get more involved if you're new here. And I had a thought. If each of us gave just one person the permission to ask us once in a while, what is the Lord telling you, and what are you going to do about it? I'll say it again. What is the Lord telling you, and what are you going to do about it? I think we as a church as a whole could do extraordinary, supernatural things for the Lord in San Francisco and beyond. Don't you agree? Thank you, Lord, for Cornerstone. Thank you, Lord. And the rest of your church body around the entire world, Father, thank you. So this Christmas is going to be a pretty tough one for my family. Uh, Michael's mom, Lina, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer this summer, and she went home to be with the Lord just two months later. It was really fast, really aggressive. I think um, a lot of us are still in shock, actually. She was this extremely vibrant and energetic woman, a successful real estate agent, active in her church and her community. She, um, she was an amazing woman, and no one did Christmas like Lina. Okay, it was her favorite season. She made, it, she made it super special, especially for her grandchildren. You might think I'm kidding, but she actually had a room built in her house just to store her 64 boxes of Christmas decorations. 64, yeah. I have one, okay? Our tree goes up in 10 minutes. <laughs> and she was the Christmas cookie queen. She would bake like 2,000 cookies and give them all away. And I've known her since I was 18. She was always so good to me. And as my own mom faded away from Alzheimer's, she really stepped into that maternal role for me. So I, I'm just so grateful for her. And we're going to miss her so much. But she wasn't just, such, she wasn't just a great mother-in-law. She was a child of God who was transformed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And frankly, I think she was the most courageous people I ever met. You know why? Because she let me drive her car. <laughs> Yeah, like a real car on a real street, okay? We survived, but she never let me do that again. <laughs> she was also a radically generous woman. She was always opening her home to those who didn't have a place to live. At her memorial service, uh, we were asked, how many of you have lived with her when you didn't have a place to go? And 100 hands went up, 100 hands. And the joke in our family was always, oh, who's living with mom these days, right? But what was truly remarkable about her was her ability to forgive. Michael's dad, Vince, left her to marry someone else, and I mentioned him earlier. And I want you to know that he's one of the most godliest men I know today. I have a tremendous amount of love and respect for him. But back then, he admits that he made some poor choices. And she was left to raise four children as a single mom. They had no contact for almost 20 years. 
But when Michael's younger brother passed away, Lina felt strongly that inviting Vince to the funeral was the right thing to do. His second marriage by then had ended, and they reconnected. And Lina invited him back into her life, as well as his children from his second marriage. And they were remarried in 2008. They celebrated their second 11th anniversary a few weeks before she passed away. And there's a plaque hanging over their kitchen sink in their house. I think uh, one of the kids gave it to them for a wedding gift that says, eat, drink, and remarry. <laughs> Isn't that great? But that is the redemptive, supernatural power of Jesus at work. Lina is a wonderful example of how the gift keeps giving. Jesus transformed her life, and in turn, she served and blessed others. And when asked why she's the way she is, she'd tell them about Jesus. And we're going to really miss her this Christmas. So as I close, um, I just have a few questions for you to ponder. Uh, we're going to put them up, jot them down, try to find a quiet moment. Uh, during this crazy season, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak into you. Number one, what or who are you taking for granted? Is there something or someone that we should be grateful for? Maybe we need to adjust our perspective or our reference points. Let's ask God to realign our hearts. Next, how does the Lord want you to grow? How does he want us to grow? Let's ask the Lord to search our hearts. I wonder if there's something... Um, anything that's imprisoning or blinding us. Ask him to reveal what it is he wants for us in 2020. Maybe we're stuck. Let's ask him to help us with that next step, whatever that might be. And finally, who are you supposed to bless? Is there someone who needs our help, even if it requires a sacrifice on our part? Or maybe we're supposed to share our faith with someone this Christmas. Maybe we're supposed to be a gift to somebody else this Christmas. And maybe you already know who it is. As we celebrate Christmas this season, may we remember all these wonderful, amazing gifts that he gives us through his son. And let's go beyond gratitude. Let's respond to the Lord in meaningful ways. And let's keep growing in 2020. In a moment, the band's going to come up and we're going to have a time of giving. But let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus, your life-giving, life-changing son. May we never take your grace for granted. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us your peace, your hope, and your joy, no matter what we're going through. Transform us into the image of your Son. And thank you for the miracle of Christmas and the cross and everything in between. All this in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.